Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. I'm Sam Matler, your host, and this is a show where I interview successful artists, producers, uh, and people in the industry, industry experts, and I apologize for uh, there not being an episode last week. What happened is we had a backlog of interviews set up, so I was interviewing people in July for publishing in August, like a month, more than a month later. And we just got a little bit complacent with uh, pitching guests. And so what happened is uh, last week we had no interview set up, no interview scheduled and didn't have anything to post. Uh, So my apologies for that, but we are back. This episode is with Bass Clef. He's been in the game for almost two decades now, 17 years. Uh, He joined a band as a drummer early on. They did really well, uh, major label deal, all that kind of stuff. That band broke up, he got into music production, uh, started his own label, made a few mistakes, which we talk about, but really cool story and he has really good advice as well. We talk about a few things in this episode. Uh, We talk about the challenges of running a label, especially today. Uh, We talk about contracts and what you should look out for in a contract. We talk about uh, him as a coach and what he sees a lot of producers struggle with. And he also shares his four-step framework uh, for writing and producing a song, which I absolutely love. And if you apply, it's going to solve a lot of your problems, whether they are in composition, arrangement, mixing, you name it. Uh, This framework helps and it's something that he's kind of systematized after 17 years of producing music. So I hope you enjoy the show. If you want to learn more about Basscliff, you can head over to Basscliff.com. This is spelled Bass, B-A-S-S. K-L-E-P-H. That is basically K-L-E-P-H dot com. You can find out more about his music, uh, his mentoring program. And if you enjoyed this episode, please head over to edmprod.com slash iTunes. There, if you visit that link, you'll be taken to iTunes and you can leave a rating and review there, which would be super helpful uh, to get more plays and get more people interested in the show. Anyway, without further ado, here is Basscliff. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers, those who've been producing for under 12 months or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Stu, better known as Basscliff. Stu, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks, Sam. Good to be on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Now, bit of a story, actually. Uh, I think six or seven years ago, I was just getting into music production and I got into DJing soon after. And so I had this mixer at home, uh, a crappy old computer, and I downloaded, I think it was the top 10 Beatport chart for Electro House or Tech House at the time. And on that was a remix of a song called Shakedown uh, made by you. 
And I loved that song. I just jammed it up for like six months. First few gigs, I played it. So that's how I came across you and your music like ages ago. Oh, wow. Nice one, man. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic song. Thanks. Well, those who, who don't know you or know you, know of you, but maybe not know you that well, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your background, how you got into music and what the journey's been like so far. Oh, wow. Um, I'm in a, I'm a music producer and DJ for about 17 years now, but it didn't start just there. I was, uh, started out playing drums from an early age as well. Um, when I was about eight years old, got into playing drums and did all the school band kind of things and stuff. And then, um, eventually got into some out of school bands. And one of them, when I was about 16, really kind of took off, uh, I went in for the trial for it. It's funny. I was one of the uh, friends of mine that I used to skateboard with, and he's like, "Hey, man, um, I know you're playing this uh, other band, but I was wondering if you'd come and try out for ours." Um, uh, we're not working with our drummer anymore, and I was like, "Oh no way! Your band's really good." Okay, cool, sure. I come to the tryout, and I'm sitting there. I learn all the songs, and there's like the uh, some old dude, this producer guy, this for the band, running around banging on, he'd pull my drumsticks out of my stick bag. And while I'm playing, he's banging on fans and hitting things and playing like out of time. I'm like, who is this crazy guy? What the fuck's going on? And um, I find out afterwards, they get, yep, actually, that was great. You got the gig. I'm like, oh, awesome. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be in. And he's like, yeah, no, this is our, this is our music producer. And he, he's just kind of fucking with you. He's just testing you to see if you'd crack under pressure. <laughs> and uh, we, we've already got it. We've We've already got a major label deal lined up and we're ready to go we just needed to make sure you were you were, you were ready for it yeah so we had a, a thing lined up with festival records and signed with them did an album recorded in the same studio as acdc actually which was really cool all when i was like about 17 years old 16 17 um yeah band went really well i toured with all my punk rock and rock heroes and stuff i played with um Pennywise and Blink-182, Unwritten Law, even Deftones and things like that. And um, played Vans Walk Tour and yeah, had a whole rock and roll start. I'm curious, what, what is, I want to get back to your story, but what is the difference between uh, playing shows or touring as a band, a drummer in a band and by yourself as a DJ? A lot less things to carry. <laughs> True. That was one of the main things. I remember thinking, I got into DJing when I was still drumming I was just fascinated by it. It was kind of like a side thing, a hobby. It wasn't as, nowhere near as popular as it is now. And I just remember thinking, wow, imagine if I was just like DJing and music producing, I'd hardly have to carry anything to the shows. This would be great. <laughs> thinking about how heavy cymbals and cases are and all that kind of stuff. So you're playing in this band and, you know, releasing an album, going well. What happens then to get you into music production? Well, I'd started, um, started already kind of liking it, being interested in it. Um, I got fascinated. Um, the, the band came to an end at some point, but I'll get to that. But uh, I, got, I got fascinated with dance music um, because the drums were so loud and amazing. It was my instrument. We, we just recorded our album. And um, it's funny, I'd, the first day you go in and record the album, you do all the drums and um, all the attention's on you. And they sit there and dial in the EQs and compressors and get everything sounding just right. The mic set up. So it's great, drums sound awesome. And then they go in the next day and we did all the bass and then we do all the guitars. Progressively throughout the recording process, my drums get quieter and quieter and push more into the background. And that drum sound I was all excited about suddenly it's kind of in the distance and it starts to become apparent that rock and roll is much more about guitars um, yeah. <laughs> than drums. 
So then I hear music like um, Chemical Brothers and The Prodigy and uh, Square Pusher and stuff like this. I'm like, what is this stuff? This is, the drums are right up front. This is amazing. I need to learn more about this. This sounds incredible. And I um, went off on a quest just buying all the music I could that sounded like that and trying to learn to write it. I used to go and use the high school. I was wrapping up high school, probably like year 11 or 12 at this point. And um, I'd, I'd use the Music Room computer. We had like an Atari ST and a little uh, music module, like a Yamaha sound module. And I'd sit in there at lunch times and try and write drum and bass <laughs> or what I thought drum and bass was at that point. Um, somehow I even convinced them actually to let me borrow that and take it home over the summer holidays. And um, I said it was for my final HSC, like school exam to work on my piece or something, but I was really just staying home writing dance music. I don't know how they let me do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, um, eventually the band uh, unfortunately broke up, but uh, maybe for the best, you know. Um, the singer decided he didn't want to be a professional musician anymore and I had the option oh. to, uh, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, it's, there's surprisingly a lot, of, a lot of pressure in it, you know, more than, more than you would expect. So I had the choice, do I find another band or what about this new dance music thing I've been really enjoying? Maybe I should do that. So it's, it's really hard to find an awesome band where you get along with, they're good musicians, yeah. they're good songwriters, you don't want to kill them on tour, that kind of stuff. I'm like, this is going to be so hard. I've got to at least have a go at trying this electronic stuff because I love it. You know, I really love it and I've gotten good feedback from people that I've played it to DJs around town and they're like, yeah, you're on the right track, you, you know, you're doing good stuff. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go hard. I'm just going to commit to this. I went and sold all my drums, cymbals, cases, all my touring equipment and invested it into studio equipment and just buckled down and um, wrote and wrote and really worked on what I was doing and I cut a demo and started shopping it around Sydney, around town, like taking it to not labels, I didn't really know many labels, but DJs. I took it into all my favorite clubs and gave it to all my favorite DJs and tried to be in touch with them and um, and so like, what did you think, you know? And eventually some of them started playing it and some of them knew labels and they introduced me to one of the first labels I signed with. And that would have been in about 2003. I put out a bunch of music with these uh, guys called Floating Point and Breaking Point. I was in um, Breakbeat actually back then. Well, it was quite popular back then, right? Yeah, it was the main sound, yeah. Yeah, it's come a long way. Um, a whole lot of adventures and, and learning experiences that, um, label I signed with, they had an extra thing to offer in their deal, which was really interesting. They said, not only we, we want to sign you, but we want to, we want to kind of train you up to, we have other, you know, long time experienced producers on our roster too. And we want them to um, sort of guide you and I suppose mentor you. And, um, and we also have a facility. We've got an incredible like pro level million dollar studio that they rent out to people and we want to train you up in it and have you eventually, you know, working there as an engineer for us and you can use it in your spare time. So as a, like a, what, 22 year old kid or whatever, I was like, this is my dream. This is amazing. I get to, you know, <laughs> just sit here and use this incredible studio and you guys are going to teach me how to use it all for free and everything too. So I was like, yeah, I'll sign my life away. Let's go. <laughs> uh, two questions. The first is you mentioned that there were quite a few pressures being in the band, obviously, especially for the singer. What were those pressures and do they differ at all from the pressures of being like a, a solo artist or DJ? Well, it was more pressures for him. I wasn't finding it so much, um, but I suppose it's easier. There's more pressure when he's, he's the lead singer, the songwriter, 
it's a lot more pressure on him if he's doing that. I was just playing drums, you know. I didn't really contribute to the songwriting much back then. I developed a lot more of my songwriting skills later on. But, you know, you get your manager uh, breathing down you about expectations of what he wants. You get the label with expectations of what they want. Um, there's the public eye and what they think of you. And that's got to be so much tougher now. I mean, compared to back then, YouTube wasn't even around. Like, if you go and look for us, you'll probably find nothing about my old band on, online, apart from a couple of articles. Um, it's called Loki, by the way, L-O-K-I. But... Um, so it was all pre all that kind of stuff and Instagram, but there is still that pressure, you know, and if you worry about things like that, uh, pressure from his girlfriend, pressure from, yeah, all sorts of things. And I just, yeah, like he's only 20, 21. So I get it. At the time I was, you know, obviously bummed. like, man, we just did the album and we're getting set to move over to an American deal as well too, with the American arm of um, our major label at festival. So I was like, so everything was lined up really well. But, um, but having said that, you know, after I've made the change, I've since now I do all my own stuff. Uh, I don't have to worry about coordinating rehearsals, about splitting royalties, about multi flights on tours. It's just one person. And I've now gone and played in, I think, about 33 countries around the world and been doing this ever since. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about this before on the show, but one thing I love about I suppose you could call it the democratization of music production and the fact that anyone can uh, be a solo artist pretty easily now is that kind of control, creative control. Because when I was in a band, was also a drummer. I was the youngest by far and like I, I just felt like I didn't have a voice, you know. Uh, and then getting into music production, it was like, wow, I can arrange a song how I want. You know, I can use this sound and, and so on and so on. And that was awesome. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's nice being in complete control and doing it all on your own time and not having to coordinate everything. And there's great potential to grow with it as well. I was starting to see already at that point, as much as I love playing in the band, um, I wasn't seeing as much potential for growth as just being the drummer in the band. It's like, if I you know, really want to make this more of a career, I need to be writing songs. So it's 2003. From, from that point until now, has it been making music, touring, I mean, pretty much the same or have there been some interesting points? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But there have been a lot of interesting points um, built up. I uh, started getting out my records and learning much more about production and mix downs. I learned so much about mix downs working with them. I was so lucky to work on all their um, top end, super expensive analog outboard gear and everything. And then take that home and apply it to my digital setup. At the time I was, you know, we work on Pro Tools in the studio. So I'd have the same setup at home or Pro Tools, the home version, LE. And I'd take the lessons I learned from working on, you know, real 1176s and LA2As and nice uh, EQs and things. And I remember how they sound in the studio and come home and I'd be mixing in my home setup and digital, I'm like, you know what, the, I know the real one doesn't sound like this. It's not as bright, you know, or it has a bit more overdrive to it. So I compensate. And I started learning how to get similar results uh, by out of the digital gear and make it sound more like analog gear. And I think I never would have been able to do that if I hadn't spent so much time, luckily, working on all this analog stuff. Definitely gave me a head start. So that was, that was a big uh, thing that really kicked off everything and made it a lot easier for me to start... Um, writing, getting a lot of tracks out and things with breaks went really well. Uh, I won a competition in 
Australia, like a national remix competition for Triple J, which was really, really crazy, really cool. Um, stoked about that. And that's when things started, I'm like, man, this could, this could really be something. Then we got hooked up with this big label, a favorite label in the UK called Finger Licking. And we got one of my friends, Nick Taylor, talked, uh, talked them into giving us a remix of one of our favorite tracks. They're like, I don't know how he did it. He's just, he's good with the chat. He's just talking to one of the, the DJs who wrote the song, Dramatic Twins in a club one night and just like, man, you should just let us have a go. Just let us have a go. Don't, we're not going to charge anything unless you, you know, you want to put it out. He said, okay, okay, you got two days. So we, we got the parts and we just hunkered down and we did like, man, like, yeah, 48 hours, like almost nonstop and smashed out this remix. And the whole time we're working on it, we're picturing, um, there was a big festival at the time. I think it still runs. It's called Field Day. It was like the biggest uh, festival and all the big guys would play there at the end of the year from all over the world. And I'm like, I want to picture this being played at Field Day and everybody going crazy. What would it sound like? You know, what would the breakdown be like? And how would it, would everybody be clapping their hands or something? What does it look like? And that was strangely the vision we came up with at the start and it all kind of panned out. They, they loved the remix. Uh, it got released and sure enough, it was like one of the most played tracks at field day and a whole bunch of other things after that as well too. And we're like, this is just eerie standing there watching it. And yeah, amazing. What were some of the mistakes you've made like over the past almost 20 years being a producer and DJ? Well, as much as there were some great things about signing to that label I was telling you about that taught me all the mixing and production stuff, that was a mistake in some senses as well too contractually and legally. Um, everything was okay at the start, but I'd signed an exclusive deal to them. I wasn't allowed to sign with anybody else. I, I would never do that again now, no way. And even I had some friends at the time warn me and go, I wouldn't do that if I was you, but it just looked so good. You know, had that studio offer and everything too. I'm like, sure, sure, let's do it. And we put out records for a couple of years, but then, um, I don't know, I think their money dried up or something and they're like, oh, we, you know, this is vinyl back then and like, oh, we don't have the money to press the next record. I'm like, well, what do I do then, man? I got these tracks finished here and people are wondering what's going on with my tunes and my music and they're going to think I'm not doing anything. This is going to hurt my career. And they go, oh, we can't do anything. I'm like, why? Now, you know, a month later, I've written more music, still can't do anything. I'm like, this is just putting a whole pause on my career, my dream, everything I want. I'm, it could be over if, uh, if this doesn't get fixed. So I had to go to, um, I went to a music lawyer. I looked at, I found out well, who's the best music lawyer I could speak to in Sydney or Australia. Had a meeting with him and spoke to him about it. He goes, it's all right, it's all right. I've dealt with stuff like this before. We can go get you out of your contract. Show me your contract. I showed it to him. He's like, oh, this is really tough. <laughs> this is really bad. He goes, he's got like a super tight contract here. It's hard to get out of and everything. Um, but he ended up coming up with a crazy plan. And um, sure enough, um, after submitting couple of clever things. Um, a month later, I was out of it and, I was, and the whole month while I was sitting there, fingers crossed, like I had a month where I kind of submitted a letter to the dude and I was like, if he had a month to get back to me and fix the problem. And if you fix the problem, I'd still be stuck on the label. If you didn't fix the problem, I'm out. So I'm just crossing my fingers going, please let this work. I got to get out of this. And as soon as I get out, I'm going to start my own label because uh, I'm sure, you know, if these guys are doing it this bad, I'm sure I could do it better. And uh, fortunately, yeah, the, um, everything went through. We got out of it. And the next day I started Vacation Records. So you started a label. Yeah. Back in, this would have been 2007. You said you wouldn't sign an exclusive contract ever again. Why is that? And do you recommend that other artists and producers 
don't sign exclusive contracts? Yeah, I, I, I doubt that I would unless it had a good option to get out at least maybe once every year or something like that or once every couple of years. It just needs an out somewhere as a flexible out. Um, but you don't really need to. Like ever since then, I've just done tracks track for track with every label. Like, you know, you sign one track to one label and if you want to work with them again, you do it another agreement each time. Um, I would recommend that they work that way too. Um, you, can, you can spread out your reach to the world more by signing with different labels and they've all got their own PR section, their own promo lists, their own marketing. So if you're on all these different labels, people are hearing about you from different sources and maybe they like three of the labels you're on, but not the other one. So it was a good thing you're on those three. You know, it's, it's kind of hedging your bets, I guess. Sometimes they might ask you for things like they're called options. I'd say be careful for that where they, they'll say, yeah, we'll take this track, but then we want first option on your next track, which means, um, you know about this, yeah. So um, it means that then every next song you write, you've got to get their approval before you can send it to anybody else. And this becomes a nightmare and you can end up getting trapped in it. I've just heard so many horror stories about people, especially the young guys who might get an email from even, even some fairly big labels who have these tight contracts. They get excited they think it's their golden ticket and sometimes it is get stuck in this contract and it just destroys them or like stresses them out. Uh, and it's not good, man. I can relate. I felt the same. That was, I've, I had, there's definitely a moment where I thought this could be the end. I might have to think about doing something else cause they own the rights to my music. If I couldn't get out of it, I wasn't allowed to release anywhere, do anything. So you couldn't, you couldn't make a song and put it out anywhere else. That's right. And I checked and I thought, well, maybe I can just change my artist name. No, they signed me as my, you know, as Stuart Tyson, as my real name. So it was like, couldn't even change an alias. That's something I wouldn't do. Don't, don't sign as your actual real name. Just sign as an alias. Tell us about Vacation Records. I mean, I've never run a label, but I know there are stresses involved with that, different challenges. How did you balance two questions like what what are some of the challenges you face? And the second question is how do you balance being an artist with uh, running that? It's a lot. Yeah, it's absolutely a lot. It was kind of born out of necessity though. I had all these, because they weren't releasing my tracks, I had a stockpile. I had about six to eight tracks, totally finished, ready to go. And I thought if I want to shop these around to other labels, it's going to take a month or two to shop them. It's going to take maybe three months or more till they come out it's too much of a dead period, you know, it's not good for keeping up my bookings and everything. So I was like, I'm just going to start my own label. I was reading about it going, it can't be that hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard. <laughs> um, but we made it work. Um, and I had my friends that had a lot of tracks that were really good too. And I was like, your track should be out. They're awesome. You know? So we started putting out my tracks and their tracks and um, started throwing some small parties and it was really fun. Um, then people came to us and they had good records too. We'd, we'd build them up to um, guys like Dave Winnell and that from Australia put out some of their first records as well. Um, and guys like Stupid Fresh and Twocker, is like Will Bailey and that. I even had a remix from, uh, who was it? Um, Wolfgang Gartner very early on in his career. Oh, and wow. um, did a bunch of stuff with Tommy Trash too. He's a good mate of mine. We used to live together actually. Um, oh. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, but the label went well until it got really busy. Once it started getting busier after a couple of years, you know, I had one assistant helping me, but still it was, it's a lot. It's a bit too much 
to do as an artist and really focus on yourself as an artist. Mm. You're going to be splitting your time in half, I think, a little bit too much. But it's, it's definitely for the love. It's a passion thing. Like, I wouldn't have been doing it so much if I didn't enjoy it so much. Mm. Same with writing music. Same thing. You know, we sit down and work for hours at a time. I bet a lot of producers out there can relate to the times you sit down and write a track and, and you get so stuck in for a few hours that you forget to eat lunch, you know, you forget to do anything and then you just, because you love it, you know. So that was the same with the label, but things have changed a little bit business-wise in the scene over the last five, maybe even five to ten years, you know. We really slowed down uh, vacation a lot because of that because the um, it's, we started out in vinyl and then got into digital and then dropped the vinyl and just did digital and then just slowed it down because unfortunately it just wasn't financially viable anymore. Like the sales dropped so much on Beatport, the amount of money that comes through. So our only option was kind of like, well, do we start signing people's publishing or take a percentage of their bookings? I was like, that's not what I got into it for, you know? Like, sure. I mean, that's, that's great for other labels to do that. But I, I was like, you know what? I had, was really busy with my own artist career and I didn't want to do this for other people if I couldn't, you know, do it as to the level I wanted to. I mean, you would have seen a lot of change happening over those last five to 10 years. And it's something I've thought about a lot with labels. Like one reason why I would not start up a label. I just don't know how it will work financially. Uh, it just doesn't seem like a good business model. Yeah, it, prob- it probably won't at all. <laughs> no, not to say I'm sure you do a really good job, but it's just really tough. But it, it is a nice thing to have for promoting yourself as an artist and your crew and your collective that's good and that's valuable. You won't directly get an, maybe not get a directly get an income stream through the record sales that come from it, but the hype that we were able to build around myself and my crew, we got like a family together of DJs and by putting out tracks together and remixing each other and organizing tours together and throwing parties, that I'm say was, was very beneficial to launching my career, especially in Australia and which then helped me launch it abroad and get agents in other countries. Because I'm not intimately involved in the music industry in the sense that I, I've never toured the world and I haven't dealt with many managers or anything, what are some of the, for better or for worse, changes that have gone on over the last 10 years inside the industry uh, that you've seen? Well, one of the main things is it's just way more popular right now, um, which is good and bad. <laughs> so some, some people get down about this because they're like, oh, it's, it's so competitive now. It's like, yeah, but it's, it's more possible than ever before too. And there's a bigger audience than ever before. Every, every other person out there who's a DJ, you know, they say everyone's a DJ. They're also a fan. They also love music. And, you know, they buy it and they buy show tickets and they support it. And our whole community of people that love dance music is much bigger now. So it's, you know, there's, there's good things and there's bad things about it. I think I lean towards it's better. I like, I like more. And, and I like um, as much as I love vinyl, as much as I love DJing on uh, vinyl and everything, I did never liked uh, having to lug around uh, vinyl cases and never liked having to, when I had to play uh, uh, interstate and I'd have to fly with my vinyl, you could only bring a few of them because they're so heavy, you know. <laughs> you couldn't bring so much. So these technology changes with us being on USB now and digital and everything, that's incredible. That's another big change that I that uh, totally changed the way it works. And the, and the the toys now. Oh my god! Like I use this thing called Machine from Native Instruments, and perform perform like semi live with it. You know, I do some live stuff on that and DJ too. And um, 
things like that and all the other awesome live um, equipment you can buy now just wasn't available back then at all. There was like the vintage reissues. You could go and find an original 808 or original Moog, but they'd be half broken, falling to bits, and you'd have to get them repaired. And now there's, there's so many cool toys you can get now. So last couple of years, what have you been focusing on? Because it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, like you're not touring as much. Uh, and you've got this educational stuff popping up. I mean, tell us about, like, what does your day-to-day look like at the moment? That's what I'm trying to get to. Well, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm just always looking out for different things. I've changed my style a bunch of times even as well. Like, I started out in breakbeat, went into kind of fidget house before it was even fidget house, then into electro, regular house, tech house, um, back to electro, (laughs) a bit of pop stuff all over the place. And I was starting to get a, you know, wanting to try different things again, but I didn't want to change my genre in bass clef anymore. So I launched um, a couple of aliases. One of them is called Tyson and it's kind of um, Jack in house with a bit of a bass house feel to it. It's a bit like some of my older stuff, but with a modern twist. You can check it out online. Oh, it's uh, T-A-I-S-U-N. Um, did a track with um, Tommy Trash for that one actually as well. And um, that was really fun. I've got another one too, which I don't really want to give away the name for yet, but it's like European techno stuff. And um, see, because techno people don't really like that I write electro and other things too. So I'm going to keep that one a secret for now. <laughs> I love techno. I love, I love all styles right. of music. So that's been going on as well. And uh, I do a lot of mix down work for people because it's something I've been doing for a long time. A little bit of ghostwriting too. And I always like to keep in touch with my followers about things they want. And this whole education thing came out of that. I was just doing more studio work and um, I really enjoyed just working and writing stuff at home. You know, I've done so much touring. I I love touring. You'll all get everybody out there who wants to tour it. You're going to love it. It's amazing seeing the world and everything. But after a while, it's nice to have a little bit of a break too. I mean, I've done yeah 10 or more years of actual touring around the world. So... I was asking my followers and stuff and go, what do you guys want? And mostly they'd always be sending me these things like, um, can you listen to my track? <laughs> can you listen to my track and give me feedback? I'm like, oh, I don't know if I got time to listen to everyone's track. I'd like to. I wonder if there's a way I can work this out and make it work for you. So essentially what you guys want is you guys want help with your music and answers to your questions. And we started talking about this in emails and things. And I thought I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to offer up a thing where I start doing some mentoring for a select group of people uh, we'll do like four sessions each and I, I want to see how much I can help you guys and, and learn from it as well as in what, what do you guys actually want to know you know um, what are the things what's the things you're struggling with so I thought, I'll just let's try this out I had no idea if this was going to be anything um, this is about a year ago it ended up blowing up and everyone was hitting me up about it. And at the end of the four weeks of working with me and working on their music, we'd work on everything from songwriting to mix down to promotion to getting signs to all this kind of stuff. Just basically sharing all the things I've learned over the last 17 years of doing this. And at the end of the four weeks, everyone's like, can we keep going? <laughs> can we keep doing this? I'm like, all right, yeah, let's, let's, I don't know for how long I can keep doing it, but let's, yeah, let's see what happens. Anyway, it's been a year now <laughs> and, I've, and I've worked with a whole bunch of people and it's been extremely enlightening uh, and extremely fulfilling to, you know, there's these things that I used to struggle with for months and that I finally figure it out, you know, how to get my mix out in a certain way or finally figure out how to promote myself in a way that doesn't waste 10 hours a day on posting stuff and things like that. And I can, these people come to me with these um, 
same concerns, questions, often fears as well, worried about, understandably about, will this label like me? Am I good enough? Things like this, and I can relate. And I can give them the answer they want straight away. And it's so awesome to see that look on their face, because we'll do this on video chat. When I go, no, no, you just need to do this. And like, oh, that makes so much sense. And I'm like, yeah, cool, I'm yeah. glad I could help, man. You know, it's, it's nice that, you know, for doing this all this time for me, as an artist, it's all about you as an artist. And you're always like, hey guys, I've got a new record out, buy my record. Or hey guys, I'm on tour, come to my tour. It's nice for a change for me to be like, hey, what, what can I do for you, man? How can, I, how can I make your adventure and your journey and your music better? So I really liked that. So it's been, it's been definitely a lot of fun. And um, the, the enlightening thing is too, I've found out so much about what people actually want and what they actually need and it's been teaching me a lot about being a better teacher too and how to communicate. This is one thing to know all this stuff, but it's another thing to know how to effectively communicate it and for them to understand it too. Talk about that a little bit because I'm self-interested because obviously I'm in the educational space as well. Um, but what, what does a good teacher do? What does a good teacher look like? I'd say the main thing is listen. Yeah, really, really listen and ask questions try to get to the bottom, sort of like diagnose in a way too. Like often, often students will come to me and they'll be like, oh, so I really want to work on my mix down or something. And that's the first thing they might come up to because they might know, because I'm kind of known for that. I'm like, yep, no worries, we can do that. That's one of my specialties. And then the more we delve into it, the more we ask questions, really what we needed to work on was their songwriting. Mm. Um, it was, and we ne would never known otherwise. If they, and if they just sent me an email, about it, you know, a quick thing. I would never know either, but it's the fact that we sat down and really spoke about it and listened to their music and dissected it all. And you start to realize, you go, oh, it's not that you're, the reason you're having trouble with all your mixes is not because you have bad skills with EQs and compression and things like that. It's you just have too many parts in your song. You, you just too many to mix. You, you don't actually need that many. And um, by giving them a lot of some, some limits and showing them the amazing benefits of placement of where you put sounds in, you know, where they happen in time and what frequency they exist in, it makes your job so much easier as a mix engineer. So many people, especially new producers, overlook that. Like mixing starts with composition. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Through running EDM Proud, I, I get a lot of emails, I've talked to a lot of people and over time, as I'm sure you notice as well, there seems to be common problems and struggles that producers have what are those or in your experience what are the what are the struggles that are most common among producers that you coach mentor um some of them one of the big ones i see a lot is people just and understandably this took me a long time to figure out but they're, they're a lot of them are doing things in the wrong order and it's it sounds like i'm oversimplifying but uh doing things in the right order is it's kind of like if you painted yourself into a corner if you're painting the floor of something and in a room, you know, have you ever done that when you're like mopping the floor and then you get to the <laughs> end of it and you're not at the door anymore and you kind of feel like, am I going to sit here and wait for this to dry? Or, <laughs> um, but yeah, if, you, if you're getting things done in the right order with your writing, your arranging and your mixing transitions and things like this too, you don't tend to have to double back and rework on things and readjust things. Um, you, you'll end up knowing exactly what you need to do next. Like you, you tick the boxes and sign off on steps as you go and go, this bit is done. I don't need to go backwards next. And you can keep going forwards rather than 
if you do it in the wrong order, you're bouncing back every time. You keep questioning yourself. Self-doubt comes into play. You start going, you know what? I liked that melody yesterday, but now I think I'm going to change it because I'm not sure anymore. And, and then you start doing things like spending an hour EQing a kick drum when you haven't finished the song yet, stuff like that. And, but if you do these things in the right order, you fly through it. Your motivation, creativity stays high. You're pumped about it. And the whole process is effortless. And man, the best songs, the most successful songs I've ever had were the ones where I just flew through the process and it felt like they were writing themselves. What would that look like in practice? Like, would you advocate the separation of production processes? Like when you're working on a melody or chord progression, just work on that, then get to the arrangement, then get to the mixing. I mean, that's hard to do. Um, yeah, I say to do it in like four steps and this, this works really well for me and it's been working really well for my students too. It's really, especially the ones that are struggling to finish a lot of music, like they want to get up their, uh, their output. Um, I said to do, first one is writing the sketch. Second one, uh, arranging, which is actually the easiest, surprisingly. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, as you, it's counterintuitive, you overthink it, but it's much easier than you think. Um, third one is transitions and flow, like kind of connecting all the sections and making them work. And the final one, mix down, yeah, um, which is the biggest one. People have the most questions, but if you do the first three right, it makes the fourth one so much easier for you. Um, so in the sketch stage, I usually say to people, look, just come up with a good idea for your drop or groove section, where the drums are playing, whatever your genre is, and a good idea for your breakdown. You know, um, some, in some genres, those things are very different, say like in Electro House or Dubstep and things. And in some genres, they're kind of similar, like in techno, they're almost the same thing, except there's no kick drum in the breakdown. <laughs> um, but either way, come up with those sections and just do writing. Don't, try not to touch EQs, try not to touch compressors. If it doesn't sound right, change the sound. Um, get, either choose a new sample, a new preset or design a new sound and push yourself at that stage as if you had that limitation to get the best results you can from just thinking in a musical sense. You know, if, it, if it's not holding your attention, ask yourself rather than do I need to put a multi-band compressor on it, maybe ask yourself, is my lead synth actually catchy? You know, like think, think musically, think about musical problems and musical solutions first. Get all of that out of the way so you don't need to double back and think about it again later. Get all, the, get all the parts down and potential parts you might use recorded. So I guess I come from this from a band background where we do this in recording with a band. You know, you'd want to make sure all the music is written before you went to the recording studio and recorded it because the recording studio is expensive. You're paying by the hour. You can't be sitting in there and going, okay, we're in the recording studio, so should we write a song? It's like, no, it has to be done before you're getting in there to do that. So if you do this stuff first, and get it sounding as good as possible, you're gonna have really good parts to work with. Everything is gonna be so much easier for the rest of the process and rather than um, you know taking something that's not so good and getting it up to a slightly better level, you're starting something that's pretty much holding its own already just because of the choices of sounds you've used, the melodies you've written. And when you go to mix it, it's effortless, effortless and it comes out you know, a much higher level. So you wrap up your sketch stage. Arrangement, step two. Go through whatever your genre is for that song you're working on and um, or if it's your genre for your whole project and have a look at like 10 of your heroes and, and their genre, you know, like, so if it's Tech House, pull in 10 of your favorite Tech House tracks, chuck them in Ableton uh, or anything where you can warp them to your tempo um, so they're all, all in the same grid and have a look at the arrangements and have a look at um, 
what comes in where and how long sections are like how long is the intro in each of them what happens next is it a breakdown is it a build etc and if you go through this and look at at least 10 of them you'll see a pattern you'll see a way there's like this is the average kind of arrangement for this genre and i recommend to everyone just start there just start with the average arrangement and you can adjust it later because it, it stops the stifling and overthinking of going well should i do this or that or yeah once you if you just chuck it into this basic shape and step back and take a look at it like play it through and listen to it you'll probably be like yeah that works so you're in there like you know um maybe i'll make this section in there a bit longer that people do need to dance longer to this particular song or maybe it needs an extra big break in this song because musically it makes sense a lot of people get hung up on their arrangements really worried going i i don't want to sound like everyone else you know, understandably, I don't want to be just copying something. Um, and I agree, I used to feel the same way. I think, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to do the wackiest, weirdest arrangements. I'm going to put in little extra one bar bits here and there. <laughs> and just to, just to be different and break the mold. And, um, and pretty soon I realized I was just trying to reinvent the wheel. And that wasn't the thing that was going to make my music stand out. It was, it was my melodies, my bass lines, my drum programming, and the sonics from my mix downs and stuff. That was way important, way more important. No one ever came up to me at a gig and went, man, I love the way you, you <laughs> arrange your tracks. It was all the other things they talk about. Um, no one's going to call you out for copying an arrangement either. Like, oh, you used a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, breakdown, chorus. Like, come on, man. That's even if they ever even notice. Um, I mean, most, most, most pop music, which is you've heard a million times all over the radio, has exactly the same arrangement that it's had for the last 30, 40 years. So, and, no one, and it seems to be doing all right for them, right? <laughs> so, when you, yeah. So, I think at first, just go with your template, you know, of your, um, for your arrangement, and you can always change it later if you really think it's important. Um, step three. So, transitions of flow... This is where you go through because your arrangement is going to be blocky and basic. It's just going to be copy-paste of blocks and chunks of musical parts. So now you go through and make sure that they transition with, say, transitional effects, rises, crashes, uh, programming buildups because that's a transition to join a two sections. Um, things like drum fills, variations, and anything that needs to evolve over time. Like if you've got parts that, you know, a lead synth that moves over the course of 32 bars or something, you might need some automation. That actually doesn't take that long either when you've got the right arrangement sitting in front of you. And then after that, it's just time to mix. That's it, you're ready to go. I like that. That's a, it's a really simple framework, but it makes sense. And I wish I had figured that out earlier on. Uh, like I want to say so Me much too. time. <laughs> yeah, the, the amount of times I doubled back, that's the funny thing. All these things I've worked out over the years to, um, I, I made the mistakes first and that's how I figured out uh, I, I need a better way of doing this. I once spent about two or three months on a track that I was planning to release back in about, oh, it did come out actually, um, in, in like 2005 and it was full of the most technical, like glitchy fills and crazy programming. I pushed my skills at that time to the limit and, and probably tried to go beyond. I was probably shooting for 105%. <laughs> um, and it took like three months. And at the end, I was like sitting back listening to it going, yeah, I really like it, but am I really going to want to wait three and a half months till my next song is done? And I'm sitting there doing the math in my head going, how am I going to have a viable career if I can only put out one song every three and a half months? And this was, as much as I love the song, it was a lot of work. Like there must be a faster way to get to a happy medium of a song I love, which I can do quicker. I really think people need to be doing like at least one track a month. Yep, I agree. 
how would you, two more questions. How would you coach someone through uh, creative block or writer's block? Um, I'd say that a, re- a really good thing I heard a long time ago, this is for music or anything in general, um, is just to go and say, just go and play one note every morning. Is it's usually a fear of getting started, you know, and that you people overthink things. I've, I've, I've gone through this myself, actually. You overthink it, you just don't know what to write. And you sit there and think, well, before I even touch a key on the keyboard, let me just decide uh, what genre am I going to head in the next uh, 12 months or something. And <laughs> you shouldn't do that, never. Just just sit down and just press a key and see what it sounds like. And say, that's that's your minimum thing you got to do. I just want you, I'll say this, say this to people again. Just play one note for me, you know. That's because they say, I don't have time or I don't have, can't come up with ideas. And every single time I sit down, play one note, you know what happens? They play a couple more and they end up writing like a melody at least. Or maybe they're programming drums. They'll, I'll say, just, just write a kick drum pattern, you know, and, you know, it's probably just going to be four to the floor. And then they'll write some hats and they'll throw in some claps. And then before you know it, it's like it takes the pressure off. And suddenly you're like, you're not... If you think about it and plan it to a head and try and you think about all the potential problems and all that things, then you should just be thinking about nothing really. You should just be in a state of Zen. It's almost meditative. Just sit, just sit down and enjoy it. If you ever put pressure on your music like that, it's going to come out bad. Even if you can finish it, it's hard enough to even finish it or write it if you've got that pressure. But even if you do get it done, it won't come out good. It's like any of the times myself or other people I know have had to write stuff or written stuff thinking they had to do it to pay the bills or thinking they had to do it to get a certain gig or pressured to do something never comes out as good. If it, if it even gets finished. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The best tracks is we just did not care at all. <laughs> and I, and I wholeheartedly encourage that music. I'm, I'm not saying I don't, I still love the music and, and I'm pushing myself, but not caring what anybody thinks of this song. I'm not caring if it, ever gets signed if it ever gets played to anybody i'm just enjoying the process yeah that's such a good attitude for creativity i think everyone listening to this has probably at some point entered their daw and said i'm gonna make a hit like this is gonna be my best song the times i've done that it just doesn't turn out well the other times where it's just been like oh, i'm just gonna make a drum loop and it turns into like the best song yeah yeah, you know what I found is um, it's funny too. Those times I'd sit down, I think I've got to write a hit today. You know, I've got this pressure from my management. They they need another hit track. You know, and I put that pressure on. Sit down. And go right. Where am I going to start? And you kind of stare at a blank Ableton screen for a while, like you're looking at a blank spreadsheet in Excel. You know, something like that. Uh, and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, I just got a new drum machine the other day. <laughs> I'd kind of rather play with that. You know, uh, or I just got a new plugin. I was really interested in checking out, but I have to write a hit. And you know, I've realized over the years is those are the things that you think are distractions. That's what you should follow. Go and pull out that new plugin you want to play with, or go and pull out that new drum machine you just got and just tinker, just have some fun. Creativity will be spawned and you and something will happen and, and, and just let it, let it be fun. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I like writing on machine is that I don't have to look at the computer. I do all my sketches on machine and then I mix it down in either Ableton or logic afterwards. Um, but it just keeps it fun. It feels like a game. It feels like I'm just jamming. And then I, I find I just write better and then I'm happier too and I have more fun doing it. I like that. All right, Stu, one last question. Uh, you're walking down the street in Spain, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden UFO comes down, 
you're about to be abducted. But uh, these aliens, they say, they give you a piece of paper and a pen and they say, you can leave behind three pieces of advice uh, for the earth. Uh, what is on that piece of paper? Three pieces of advice. Doesn't necessarily have to be music production advice. Uh, it'd probably be general anyway. The first one would probably be stop worrying, have fun, and I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, man, thanks heaps for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I've, been, I've listened to the show for a while too, so it's great to be a part of it. Awesome. 